You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. So good morning and good afternoon, depending on where you're joining us. Welcome to ODI. My name is Francesca Bastagli. I head the equity and social policy program here at ODI. Uh, and I'll be chairing today's conversation. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled to, to welcome uh, five distinguished speakers uh, to the discussion today. Uh, and I'll be introducing to them, them to you shortly, in a minute. Uh, first, I'll just say a few words just to set the scene. So today we're talking universal basic income and universal basic services. UBI, universal basic income, uh, is an idea, not a new idea, but it's an idea that has been attracting, uh, increasing attention, renewed attention in recent years. Um, some of the proponents of a UBI uh, pitch it as an instrument that will be potentially very effective in tackling uh, some of the biggest challenges we're facing, a number of inequalities along different dimensions, poverty, challenges arising around uh, trends in the labor market. And it's also being touted potentially as a, as a solution to some of the persistent inequities and, and shortcomings of the existing social protection and, and fiscal systems. Um, at the same time, there's a concern that this emphasis on UBI is detracting efforts and resources away from equally or possibly even more important policy priorities Importantly, of course, uh, for example, basic services. Um, there's also a concern, I think, that, that uh, some of the proposals, what is it, some of the yeah, proposals that are putting for, put forward, the way the UBI is being configured, uh, that it's part of a wider uh, shift towards the individualization of risks and responsibilities away from, from more collective um, policy solutions. So partly, uh, I think in response to these concerns, we are seeing also a resurgence in the idea of universal basic services. Again, not a new idea, um, but certainly the, there's a clear message coming through um, that we do need to uh, continue to focus on policy solutions that, um, that focus on, that, that, that think about, that aim to um, provide solutions that around risk, uh, well, collective uh, resource um, um, risk sharing and resource sharing, for instance, through the collective provision of services. So in many of the debates we're seeing, actually UBI and UBS are being argued as an either-or issue. At the same time, we know, we're well aware that some of the proposals around the UBI and some proponents of UBI are actually aiming for a wider reformulation of social protection <coughs> and, and social fiscal policy that is very much in line with the UBS approach. So one of the things we want to talk about today is, you know, what does this potential convergence look like uh, if, if there is, you know, there is some degree of or potential of convergence there, and if so, how do we make it happen? So to talk about these issues, we have um, a fantastic lineup of speakers. I'm, I'm uh, honored to welcome um, five esteemed speakers, uh, Anna Kut who's here with, uh, with me in, uh, in uh, London at ODI, Principal Fellow at the New Economics Foundation. Jean Drez, uh, prof Honorary Professor at the Delhi School of Economics um, and Visiting Professor at Rachi University, who's joining us uh, online from Rachi. <coughs> Isabel Fry, uh, Director of the Studies in Poverty and Inequality Institute, uh, 
who's joining us online from uh, Joburg in, in South Africa. Ugo Gentilini, also here with us uh, at ODI in London, the global lead for social assistance at the World Bank. And last but not least, of course, Caroline Tetti, Director, Recipients Advocacy at Give Directly, who's joining us um, online from Nairobi. So um, I'm, what we will be doing is we will be discussing these topics, learning from both the experience of, of countries and recent debates, practical operational experience around these issues, but also um, sharing some of the findings of recent publications that have, that have uh, just recently come out. The, I'll be handing over in a minute to the speakers. They will be all uh, delivering some introductory remarks. We'll then move into a, um, a moderated discussion. Uh, as part of that discussion, of course, we are also taking questions from the online audience. So by all means, please do submit any questions to our panelists that you might have. I'll, I'll be monitoring the screen here and can then put them forward to our speakers as we go into the moderated discussion um, stage. That's all for me from now. Ugo, I hand over to you first of all. Um, so in a recent book on, on UBI, uh, you explore the, the, some of the key issues, uh, discussions, debates, but also practical implications of UBI in its different potential configurations. Can you tell us a bit about this book um, and also some of the key emerging issues around how broader financing and the wider social policy context matter to how UBI functions in practice? Well, thank you very much, Francesca. Great honor uh, to be part of this panel. Um, so what we find in the book is that there are uh, at least um, four broad buckets of issues that help uh, shape a little bit our understanding uh, of UBI and help explain a little bit its performance or possible performance. And those buckets relate to uh, objectives, uh, to trade-offs, to contexts, and to system-wide issues. Um, so let me just take them in turn. Uh, in terms of objectives, it's very important to be clear about what is the problem that UBI is trying to solve. Um, there are so many different narratives out there. Uh, UBI is seen as a way of uh, um, managing or countering the effects of automation, um, as a way of redistributing resources as a social dividend um, to citizens, or as a, as a social assistance interventions, so with specific poverty and nutritional objectives. And depending on which narrative you are, there are broad design implications, including for the amount of transfers uh, that are provided. Um, of course, also there are underlying different views about the role of the state. Um, and we see that some, uh, on one hand, some proponents of UBI um, favor a minor role of government and the state. So this is kind of the argument of UBI as a Trojan horse to roll back state capacities. Uh, other see it as a stepping stone towards an enhanced role of the state. So as part of the social floor uh, concept. And of course also those considerations um, trickle down into the modalities in which UBI can be introduced. So if it comes in substitution to existing schemes, the question is how far should that substitution go, which is in part a cost issue, but it's also an ideological one. Should include services, should include insurance. Or is UBI a top-up to existing schemes? 
or do you give people choice whether to have a UBI and forego existing benefits or retain uh, the existing benefits under the current system? This is a little bit the Yang model in the US. Uh, so that's one broad bucket of issues, being clear about the objectives and the framing and the narrative. The second point is um, about trade-offs. So the moment that the objective is clear, what are th some of the broad parameters against which UBI should be assessed and compared to what? So in the book, we offer kind of a framework to think about those issues. How does UBI perform in terms of uh, coverage, uh, incidents, adequacy, incentives, uh, financing, overall costs, as well as financing options, political economy, delivery issues. And um, uh, it, it, no single program would be uh, perfect and score highly across the board in those dimensions. So oftentimes the question is, what is the optimal equilibrium um, if you're comparing UBI with another scheme? Which goes back to the point of how much weight do you put, for example, on coverage versus adequacy or the generosity of transfers. Um, we, we ran some simulations for a range of low, middle, and high income countries. And what we found is that if you take away some of the major cash transfer schemes and redistribute them to all in the form of UBI, um, well, the existing schemes tend on average to work better in terms of poverty reduction than a UBI. Uh, this is because, for example, in the context of India, is you know the great progress that has been uh, made with the PDS um, on terms of coverage, uh, reduction of leakages, and even timeliness of transfers, especially on some of you know the lower income states. Um, uh, so the point, and we look also at distributional impacts, is that universal doesn't necessarily mean that the poorest are better off. Depends what you substitute. Depends also what you finance and whether you see UBI, again, as a complement, something you build upon, or something that you merely substitute. If you want to uh, augment the poverty reduction effect of UBI, you can give higher transfers, which, however, come at the higher cost. We estimate between 2.5 and 24% of GDP, which raises quite some form formidable challenges in terms of political economy of domestic resource mobilization. Nothing is impossible. but in context with limited direct taxation, indirect taxation. That's an important conversation to have. And finally, um, actually, the third bucket is about context. So how does the existing social protection universe look like? So in context where you do have high coverage, uh, progressive, and adequate systems, uh, think twice before throwing out the baby in the bathwater. Um, and perhaps there are specific bottlenecks that could be addressed. Or if you want to still go for UBI, frame it differently. Instead of you know, having kind of a poverty focus, maybe a social dividend or another form of framing. Um, for contexts that have high coverage but are slightly regressive, maybe a UBI could be considered. But you know, still important distributional effects. Maybe some of the elderly may, may be hurt, or families with children. So whether you could compensate those. For contexts that are limited in coverage but highly progressive, a, a budget-neutral uh, UBI may actually hurt those at the bottom. Um, and in other contexts, like a typical low-income country with uh, limited coverage um, and uh, limited financing options, both in terms of taxation or natural resources, uh, it, it's important to 
consider the introduction of UBI if that's the case on perhaps on a gradual basis, but also having the conversation of financing from the get-go alongside that of the benefits. And finally, uh, in terms of system-wide issues, having such a large-scale program really puts the emphasis on understanding the different type of markets, food markets, labor markets, housing markets, health markets. What would happen when you have this big injection of cash? Um, it depends a lot on the market structure and the market power. Um, so would, it, would landlords increase uh, rents? Uh, would food prices skyrocket? So that depends a lot on how markets are working, but it also speaks to the importance of perhaps a pace, the pace of introduction to give time to markets to adjust, but also it speaks perhaps to the trust that citizens have um, on the state to help mitigate and manage those possible ups and downs of markets. Um, and, and then there are big system-wide issues that we still need to explore. How does it relate to the minimum wage? How does it relate to pension systems? Um, what does it take from a delivery perspective to put such a big pressure on payments, on number of delivery issues? Um, and also there is a broader story of institutional reform that uh, some of the pilots are very useful to advance empirical agenda on some questions, but there are large unknowns around what it takes institutionally. I'll stop here. Thank you, Ugo. Um, Anna, you've also recently published a book um, looking at universal basic services. Um, can you explain a bit more about the approach um, and why, why it's important in, in the way we go about thinking about tackling some of the big challenges, um, contemporary challenges we're facing? Thank you, yes. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. And, um, Yes, our, our, the work that we've been doing on universal basic services has been, it started as a, a critique of some of the manifestations of universal basic income. Because what, what really worried us was the, the fact that by talking, if you talk all the time just about it, cash transfers, you overlook the importance of, um, of services. So what we're talking about here is reclaiming the collective ideal and working together to meet needs that we all share by enlarging the social wage. Now, the social wage is, um, is the virtual income that you get from services. So it, you can see it alongside a cash income, but it's, uh, what we want to do is focus attention on these, uh, on these services. So what we mean by uh, UBS, it's best if I do it in reverse order. So by services, we're talking about collectively generated activities that serve the public interest. Basic is not about minimal, it's about what is essential and sufficient to enable people to meet their needs. And needs analysis is very important to this debate. And by universal, we mean that everyone is entitled to services that meet their needs, regardless of their ability to pay. So that's our definition. Now, moving on, we, there are three important guiding principles here. First is that uh, the, the, uh, the principle of meeting shared needs, that is, what's essential to life that enables us all to survive and flourish. Um, and it's common to all of us across generations, and it's different from wants. And there's a good literature on this that helps us to understand what's a need and what's a want. It's the things that we all need, and they're common to all of us. And so the second principle is collective responsibilities, 
which is about pooling resources and sharing risks so that we all meet all of our needs. And that this isn't just because it's a nice thing to do, but because it is actually the fundamental basis of social life. And the third important principle for us is sustainable development. So what we're doing is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So those three guiding principles provide a sort of a framework for thinking about services and, and how we um, achieve them. Now, the proposal is that we have uh, universal services that are available to all according to need, not ability to pay, which I've said that we, we then need to identify what's needed to ensure that everyone has access to life's essentials. Now, this will probably include healthcare, education, that those are the ones that you most commonly find in most countries, and then childcare, adult social care, housing, transport, and access to digital information. Those are the ones that we focused on in our book, but there are, there are others, and you could, you could also look at the utilities. So what we're looking at is meeting needs through these collectively generated activities and services, and doing it alongside what we would describe as a reformed system of income protection, which is sufficient and non-stigmatizing for all who need it so that no one's income falls below an agreed level. And I think that is different, certainly different in our view, to UBI. And we're talking about, when we talk about services, it's important that we're not just talking, I mean, this is a set of ideas that has come out of the, the developed world, the welfare states of, the, of, of Europe and so on, and um, that we're not just wanting to go back to the good old days of the welfare state. We're, we want transformation here, and there are certain points that I want to emphasize. Firstly, spending on these services is investment, not just expenditure. We're valuing and building the social infrastructure that is crucial to all of our lives. Secondly, we've got an awful lot of experience around the world that we can learn from you. I mean, you've got the NHS in England, you've got a lot of services, what's wrong with them, what works, what doesn't work, so we've got plenty to learn from. And then another critical point here is that this is not just about giving things to people. It's about uh, inclusive and enforceable entitlements so that everyone has a right to services that meet their needs. And that's a big challenge of how, do we, how can we best um, create those structures that will enable us to enforce our rights to, to services. Then we want to in, in, encourage multiple models of, of ownership and control. So we're not just wanting top-down state provision, but co-ops, social enterprises. Uh, the main thing being to try and eliminate the profiteering element. So we're not fussy about who's providing services. We think that bottom-up models are it's very important to encourage them. The aim is to put people in control uh, with decisions that are grounded in democratic dialogue. Um, sorry. So, in practice, oh no, no, there's a, a what, yes, it's, this is an important bit, what we, what this implies for the role of governments or the role of the state. First of all, you want to apply the subsidiarity the subsidiarity principle, so do things at the lowest possible level. But governments at national and local level need to work together to do the following things, to provide services 
directly where appropriate, and this will vary hugely between countries, to ensure that everyone has equal access. This is a key role of the state. Nobody else can do that. To set and enforce quality standards, likewise. To collect and invest funds. And to support local control and coordinate services across different areas of need for the best outcomes. Now, in practice, one of the most important things, uh, it's a bit sort of echoing what uh, Ugo said earlier, that it's going to be different in every area of need and it's going to be different in every country. So you need a customised approach to each area, building on what already exists. And most of the examples we've used in the book do come from European countries. But just to give a few examples of what we would like to be able to achieve. So in childcare, we would want universal access, a well-trained and suitably paid and remunerated staff with parents involved in how that childcare is run. With adult social care, we'd want to focus on prevention. Now, this is different from childcare. What you want to be doing is ensuring that as far as possible, people are able to live independent lives for as long as they can. So you want to think about how you pre prevent people needing care in older age. Then you want universal free access with support for informal carers and well-trained and suitably paid staff. And then for housing, we think we need, depending again on the country, large pub public building and refurbishment programs, public land ownership. I think land ownership is very important to ensure that everyone has access to housing as a matter of right. And then we're thinking about things like mixed neighbourhoods, uh, tenant control and issues like that. Sorry, this is very, very abbreviated. With transport, we think free buses uh, with well-connected routes. And for information, we think now, and this is a, a new thing really, that internet access should be regarded as a utility, not as a commodity, with universal service obligations on the providers. Um, now, again, this is very condensed, but we would say that if you look at providing services, that they can bring gains across four important dimensions, equality, efficiency, solidarity, and sustainability. So for equity, um, public services are essentially redistributive because they're worth much more to poor countries. And um, for efficiency, certainly if you compare service, public service provision or collective service provision with um, uh, cash transfers and market transactions, you get a much more efficient result. You get economies of scale, you can rule out profiteering, you get, uh, we've learnt certainly in uh, Europe over the last few years and in the United States that competition and choice really don't help to ensure that everyone's needs are met. Solidarity both um, is, is fed on by the creation of public services and helps to strengthen solidarity. So the very act of getting together and pooling our resources and sharing needs builds solidarity across populations, and that's important. And finally, sustainability, where this is a matter of particularly of, of, of public consumption, um, where we can achieve much better results in terms of GHG emissions and uh, the and natural resource use. So that's all spelt out in more detail in the book. Um, now, let's come on to this question of UBS and cash payments, obviously both are essential. We have estimated the cost of UBS, and this is for 
um, OECD countries mainly, that it would be a, a cost about uh, up to 5% of GDP to uh, um, do what we are suggesting in the book, which is to extend services that we already have. So I realize it would be different in different countries. In any case, the, as I think Hugo, you referred to this, that um, the cost of a sufficient universal basic income would be something around 20 to 30% of GDP. So what counts is the threshold and the trade-offs. And the worry that we've always had is that if 20 to 30% of GDP is spent on a cash transfer, then you've got something that is incompatible with a program to develop more and better collective services, both for fiscal reasons, because it would swamp out any kind of money that would be available to pay for services, and for ideological reasons, because it would say, well, we're going to spend the money on, um, on cash transfers because we don't need the state, or we, and then people can buy what they want in the marketplace. And then there are people who say, well, you know, don't worry about that because there's always, you can always find additional money, to which we would say, well, actually, any additional funds are urgently needed for climate mitigation, for green infrastructure, and for improving collective services. And then we would take account of the fact that an enlarged social wage would mean that people need a smaller disposable income nearly the end. So here we are at the conclusion. So our aim is to, um, sorry. our aim is to build more and better collective services for all according to need, not ability to pay as a matter of right alongside reformed social security system that gives everyone a guarantee to their income that, won't, that their income won't fall below an agreed minimum. And so there's a big question about what's affordable and what's a priority. And a cash payment scheme must not be a barrier to more and better services. There aren't any silver bullets here. Just as UBI can't solve all the problems of poverty and inequality, nor can UBS. Pooling resources and sharing risks so that all our basic needs are met requires a complex, many-sided political program. And if we have more and better collective services, and they are well organized, democratically controlled, and adequately funding, that's the best hope we have of achieving equality, efficiency, solidarity, and sustainability. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anna. Very clear outline and, and case. So we'll move to our, our presenters um, online. I'll turn to Caroline, first of all, uh, from Nai in, in, based in Nairobi. Caroline, you, you've been involved now uh, on the, in the basic income experiment in rural Kenya. Could you tell us uh, a bit more about this project um, and what it means to people's, to people's lives? Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Um, very glad to be part of this conversation. And, um, also would like to just echo the fact that I am coming from a different context and I'd like to, you know, just echo what Hugo said initially, that the application of UBI could require contextual understanding of the people we are trying to support and what questions we are trying to answer with the intervention. So Give Directly uh, launched a basic income program 
sometime in 2016 as a pilot and rolled out as a full-scale experiment in 2017, at the end of 2017, 2018. And um, this, like the name suggests, is a randomized control trial. So basically what we are saying is at this point we are in the process of collecting the evidence to help us answer some of the questions that people ask about basic income and how that um, you know, interfaces with a context such as Kenya. That said, uh, it's important also to note that the population group that I'm going to be talking about is pretty much different from what most of the speakers here are um, you know, maybe referencing. And I am talking about a population that is living, um, you know, on $2 a day or under, and people who, for the basic income that we're providing in Kenya, who, uh, you know, had never at the time of launching this project, 40% of the 20,000 people we had enrolled in this program had never in their lives ever touched $22 in one go. So we are talking about real extreme poverty. We're also talking about a population whose definition of work may not be the formal spaces where people live and go to offices and earn salaries, but rather casual labor working on farms and earning very little to sustain their families. So the understanding and definition of work is totally different. We're also talking about a people whose definition of a basic income is just as basic as do I have a cloth over my body, do I have a roof over my head, and do I have food for myself and my children? So it's really, really basic. People who, with $2 in a day, can be able to survive on two meals a day. So they're pretty much living on the edge. It's therefore a, a really um, you know, difficult conversation for this kind of population to start putting the parallels between basic services and basic income. Because these are people whose needs start from as basic as what will I eat, nutrition, that people have to live. People have to eat to live. These are people who are not connected to an electricity grid, and we don't expect that this basic income is going to resolve basic, uh, I mean, connection to an electricity grid. We also don't expect that this basic income is going to bring home health care and education. And therefore, in my view, there is no day in the context of Kenya that we are going to talk about a basic income without thinking about the role of the state in providing universal education, universal health care, and making sure that these populations have access to electricity. With all that, over the last two years that our recipients have been receiving basic income, we have seen both economic and non-economic outcomes in these communities. And when we come to economic outcomes, one thing that we have seen is basic income has activated social mobilization, where people mobilize themselves to save up money to start up projects that can help them live visions that they would never live if they did not have that little income. So it might look little, but it gives them an opportunity to make decisions that can give changes that have impact at community level. We have seen improvements in livelihood security, and I have been able to myself walk into villages when we were enrolling the first, community, the first households into this program and saw emaciated children, children who could not have sufficient food to eat. 
And you could see you did not need to be a nutritionist, you did not need to be a scientist to see that this child is actually starving. And visiting six months, nine months later, seeing the transformation that $22 that the mother received has made in this child's life is something that, you know, I cannot bargain with. We may or may not understand that women in rural villages in contexts such as Kenya are the most resilient people. With $22, we have seen women start off businesses with as little as $2, and they have grown them to $60, others $100. And that growth in smallholder businesses actually builds markets within villages and responds to some of the bigger questions that we ask when we are talking about what should we do to lift community out of poverty. Uh, in terms of social, um, you know, social outcomes that we see with this program, I will single out specifically women in married relationships. The empowerment that we see in women in married relationships just by the fact that a mother has $22 and a father has $22 cannot be compared with anything I have seen. Women have a voice in their houses. They can sit with their husbands and budget they can be able to leave home and go look for extra money because the husbands now look at them as contributors to the family welfare. So women empowerment is one thing that, you know, I have seen continues to happen. And by the words of one old woman who I visited one day, she told me, and she was speaking in hushed voices, and she was like, you cannot believe this, my daughter. And I know these boys will not tell you, but now they are living with their wives very happy because of this money. They will never tell you that now they are not fighting their wives. But we who are older and now watch them now know that they do not beat their wives because both of them have money and the mother is now contributing. So there is just a sense of peace that is seen in these communities. I have also seen a mindset change where people who lived on a day-by-day -day basis, hand to mouth, I live today to eat if there is food or not to eat if there is no, if there is no food. Today, I see a people who say, you know what, I know there's something that is coming. I'm expecting some money, and therefore, I need to think about what this money can do for me. And instead of sitting back and watching for how much this money can do for me, today, I can say, with $22, I'll be able to buy myself this much, and that $22 will not be able to sustain my, my, my household the whole time. So I'll need to go back out, work, and supplement this money with is something transfers. Caroline, can you... Sorry, guys, we lost light, but it is back. Yes, I think you're back now, yes. Um, so that said, I wanted to talk about testing and conditional cash transfers. When you look back to the... Com yes, I am back. We lost power, but it is now back. restart the connection hopefully we'll get you back online in a moment in the meantime we'll move forward i'm sorry to 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 lose for now at least your last points uh final points but uh let's move on to isabel and then make him come back to carolina once the reconnection is established isabel um 
uh, you're joining us from from uh, from Joburg. Uh, could you tell us a bit about the basic income debate in South Africa and your experience um, there as part also of, of uh, the debates there? Absolutely. Thank you very much for the invitation. I work uh, with a not-for-profit research organization called Studies in Poverty and Inequality Institute, as you said, in Johannesburg. Um, and I'll try and keep to time. So um, I think the idea of a basic income grant has a, had a lot of traction in South Africa. We have a constitution that in terms of, um, that basically provides for a justiciable right to social security and social assistance subject to progressive realization, section 27.1c. Um, and so that, that for us is the starting point. And it's always interesting as to whether or not one talks about um, a basic income grant in light of a, a constitutional right, uh, or whether it's a poverty alleviation development. Um, one of the things that I've been learning with time is that there should never be a binary. Um, and, and so the very nature of this discussion, I think, is, is interesting in that uh, context. So we, we start with the fact that we have a base, uh, constitutional right to social security. I think it's important very briefly just to, to let people know, because we've been talking about Western developed countries, we've been talking about Kenya, where there's high poverty. South Africa is an upper middle income country. Um, we're also one of the most unequal countries, if not the most unequal country in the world. So we have a very small band of, of very rich elites, and we've got a vast majority of people living in poverty. So the most recent figures show that 55.5% um, of South Africans live uh, below an upper bound poverty line. One in four, so 25%, live below the food poverty line, as estimated by the World Health Organization. So we have absolute destitution and severe poverty in South Africa. At the same time, we have a, a highly um, urbanized society because through apartheid and colonialism, people were forced off the land so that we don't have a rural peasantry or a, a kind of um, ability to, to, um, to feed, for people to feed themselves. Um, we have what is called a very sophisticated social security system that exists in terms of, of income transfers. Um, it is, however, means tested and it's categorical. So for children up to the age of 18, for old age people from uh, 60 onwards, um, and for people living with disabilities, um, and that amount, amounts to about 18 million people out of a population of just under 60 million. So our current population is 59 million, but 18 million people regularly receive monthly cash transfers. Um, there is, however, a big middle, which is 18 to 59-year-olds receive absolutely no income support. At the same time, two days ago, our latest uh, labor force survey results came out showing that if you include people who've given up looking for work, we've got 38.7% of working age people who are not employed. Um, and in addition to that, we have an um, estimated 15.9, so 16 million people who are needs, not in employment, education, or training. Um, so we have a cash-dependent society in which the majority of people are not having access to cash. Um, and we have a bizarrely expanded system based on the apartheid categories of people who should not be uh, needing income. So um, it excludes working age people because under apartheid, white people generally were always guaranteed employment because of job reservation. So we have a, a very high need. Um, 
the I, I just want to talk briefly about the history of where we are and, and then conclude with the current situation. So in 2002, we had a ministerially appointed committee of inquiry um, that looked into a comprehensive social security. One of the main recommendations was that the current system be based on a universal basic income grant that would go to everybody. And of course, uh, we'll come to financing at some stage in general, but it would be clawed back from middle income um, uh, middle income people, um, but it would be fiscally, it would be, it would be tax-based. The response at that stage um, by government, and at that stage we were economically much better off than we are now. In 2005-06 we had a fiscal surplus, so um, the government's response was ideologically driven. Um, firstly, they said it was unaffordable, um, and then a number of us um, in a civil society organization uh, showed that there were different ways in which it could be uh, less unaffordable. Um, and the second response was that the amount that, would, that we were suggesting was so low it would be an affront to the dignity of people living in poverty. So it's better to starve than to receive a very small amount, which we argued over time would increase. Um, one of the arguments that Caroline made um, was one of the ones that we've been able to give evidence for, which is that economic demand increases when cash transfers go into houses. So right now, our economy is growing at about what, between 1.2% uh, and might be about 0.9% this year. So we've got no circulation going on in terms of our economy because people don't have access to income in order to stimulate demand. Uh, and without demand, you have no supplies. So um, the cash grant income that currently exists has been very clearly demonstrated as being linked to demand. Um, the question of where we are currently, um, unfortunately, the civil society coalition uh, weakened over time. I think it's fair to say that the direct response from the state in regards to the strong demands of the coalition backing on their own committee of inquiries recommendation uh, was to extend the child support grant that initially was only available to poor children under the age of seven, and that's progressively been extended now to 18, and was also to introduce um, public works, expanded public works program. But many of us know in the literature suggests that public works are not sustainable as social protection in a chronic situation. In a crisis, um, they are, they're often used, um, but it's a, a three-month um, digging a road is not really going to give you the same benefit that permanent income security does. Um, the, we do have a, a statutory social dialogue um, institution known as NEDLAC, the National Economic Development Labor Council, which is responsible for the introduction of all socioeconomic policies. Um, and it's based on the tripartite, so um, three parties of the government, business and labor, plus civil society, uh, where I, I go in. Um, and we are looking at, we've undertaken a, a very large research project looking specifically at the role of a basic income grant going forward. So it, it's not permanently off the, the cards, but it is really slightly shifted away from the mainstream. Interestingly enough, um, South Africa recently signed the ICSCR, International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. One of the recommendations after the uh, submission of our first report by the committee was that our government uh, consider the introduction of a basic income grant. One of the things that many people talk about is a constitutional court challenge uh, based on the equality exclusion of, of working age people from social security. 
one of the problems that that entails is that would require massive resources in terms of research. So um, I think the, the questions that we come up against are value, what, where it should be set, the financing. Um, and as everybody said, we need to make people see that it's not a silver bullet. And that very briefly um, brings me to the UBS, the Universal Basic Services. I really don't think they should be positioned as an either or. In South Africa, um, there is a, a right to basic services. It's very means tested. We have a very slight indigency scale. So the stigmatization that goes with that, of course, is very apparent. However, in addition to that, they're very poorly delivered. Um, so if that was the only thing that people were dependent on, there would be a problem. And of course, I, I, I know that uh, a universal supply would mean that uh, you would increase demand for value. Um, one of the things that we're working on at SPY, my, my research organization, is what we call a decent standard of living. And this, in, in conclusion, is interesting because uh, it, it's a focus group devised standard of living. But it identifies three main ways of accessing a decent standard of living. The one being own income. And so that's, uh, that's earned income generally, so the sort of minimum wage coming in. The second is the social wage, and that speaks very much to the, the sort of basic services that are, are mentioned, have been mentioned. By Anna. Um, and then the third is solidarity, so borrowing from your neighbor if you don't have enough to, to supply for yourself. Um, and this is a very, for us, a very useful concept in talking, engaging with government because it says it's not 100% based on government supply, but there are different ways of, of, of variegating access. But income for us in South Africa, particularly, is incredibly important. Um, and uh, Keeping alive the discussion around basic income is good. Uh, one of the things that we need to look at, however, is the phasing in, so kind of age categorical. Uh, unemployment amongst um, youth aged 15 to 24 is 70%, um, and our long-term unemployment is 71%. So basically, if you're not going to get a job um, when you're young, you're not going to get a job when you're, when you're older, and that's the only access to well-being. And I will uh, keep it for there, but thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, Isabel. Uh, very clear and interesting. I'm going to try and go back to Caroline. I think the connection has been restored. Caroline, you were just coming to the point around conditionality, conditional cash transfers. That's where we lost the connection. Sorry. Uh, so I was talking about conditionality, use of mean testing, and the context of implementing a basic income in a context such as Kenya. One thing is it would be very difficult to use mean testing in the context where we are delivering the basic income because in these villages, their poverty is so high that by the time you get into those villages, everybody certainly needs to be supported. So there is no question of mean testing. You basically not find someone that you need to exclude from the support. Um, the other thing is universality. If we applied universality, then we would be compromising, I mean, uh, if using mean testing would be compromising the universality of a universal basic income. So in our test uh, in Kenya, we are trying to be able to provide evidence for what happens when you give everybody money without considering whether they are richer or poorer, um, you know, so that we can be able to provide some evidence around what is it that happens when everybody else, uh, everybody in the community receives, receives the income. So, and like I had said, universal basic income, universal basic services, 
which one comes before the other, which is more important. And um, just like Isabel has said, we cannot downgrade or close our ears to universal basic services. People need to go to hospitals. People need to go to schools. People need to have access to electricity. Governments must stand up and provide for basic services for their citizens. A universal basic income, the value that we are giving in Kenya, cannot be used to build hospitals or service them or staff them. We still need public services to work. We need utility, uh, utility services to work because a universal basic income in the situation that the, the recipients that we are in find themselves is responding to their consumption needs. So once they meet their basic needs, there should be a public service that they can rely on to be able to access universal basic education, universal basic health. They can be able to access the electricity grid and just be equal, like citizens of the country, and not be left to struggle because now they receive a basic income. Thanks so much for this opportunity and for uh, being a part of this lively conversation. Thank you, Caroline. We'll be, we'll be back in a minute on the, on the moderated discussion, but let me turn to Jean, who's been patiently waiting. Thank you so much, um, Jean, for joining us. Uh, obviously, you've, we've been following uh, your work and the debate in India over many years. Could you give us your insights on, on the discussion around basic income, cash transfers, the PDS system, and, and, and possibly touch also on the services aspects from, from, uh, from where you sit uh, in Ranchi? Sure. Well, firstly, I'm very much in agreement with the point that almost everybody has made so far, which is that there's a kind of complementarity uh, between UBI and UBS. And I think the complementarity comes from the fact that UBS, or at least some public services, are not just a means of redistribution. I mean, if it was only about redistribution, then you could have UBI and that would serve the purpose. But if you think of something like healthcare, for example, the case for universal healthcare, it's not just that you are helping the poor, but it's also that there are massive market failures in the field of healthcare, which have been well understood for a long time. I mean, it's about externalities, about, it's about asymmetric information, it's about exploitation, it's about the fact that people don't always know how they should protect their health, or they may know, but they may not do it for various reasons. It's about the importance of social norms. I mean, it's a field that is shot through with uh, market failures, and that's one important reason for providing healthcare uh, through either public provision or some form of social insurance. So I don't think UBI can substitute for that at all. Let me also say that I have been quite moved and in agreement with what Caroline said about how social support uh, can make a big difference to the lives of poor people. That is something that we see all the time in India, and it's important to say, uh, you know, we could give similar examples about how children have benefit benefited from school meals, how, how widows uh, subsist uh, largely on social pensions. And it's important to say, because there's a constant effort in a certain section of the media, and especially the business-sponsored media, to disparage this, so these social programs and to give the impression that they're a big waste and, uh, and to use disparaging terms like uh, handouts and freebies and so on and so forth. In fact, uh, these efforts, when they are well-made, can really make a big difference to poor people. Now about UBI, because there is a budding debate about UBI in India. 
I, in the long and short, is I think it's a premature idea as far as far as India is concerned. And let me try to explain that briefly. Um, personally, I liked the idea of UBI as soon as I heard about it many years ago in the 1980s in the context of Europe. And what appealed to me in particular was the idea that if someone is willing to lead a simple life and settle for a basic income, then they should be free from wage labor and they should be able to use their time in a different way. And I would like to think that many of them will use their time to do creative and constructive things, uh, whether it's doing something for the environment or for the local community or to build uh, open source software to develop their talents and so on and so forth. Of course, I can't prove that this is what will happen, but I, I like the idea. India is a completely different context. Uh, Caroline has said quite rightly that all this has to be seen in context. For example, one big difference between a country like India, or for that matter, Kenya, and European countries, I mean, think of what it means to give the basic income to rich people. I mean, in Europe, it doesn't really matter because they are the ones who are paying for it in the end. I mean, if you're financing UBI from progressive taxation, it may look like you're giving basic income to the rich, but they're actually paying for it, so it actually comes back. But in India, a lot of rich people are not paying taxes. And there are huge transaction costs also in the tax system. So giving basic income to the rich, and especially the urban rich, is something you should really think twice about. More importantly, I think we need to see all this in the context of what is happening today in the field of social security. And a lot has happened, actually, in the last 15 to 20 years, at least until around 2014. For example, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act has come into force, which gives up to 100 days of guaranteed employment to all adults in rural areas. Uh, the pension schemes have greatly expanded, and they are in fact now close to universal in, in some states of India. Uh, that is for old people, as well as uh, single women and disabled persons. Uh, there are maternity entitlements now for all pregnant women under the National Food Security Act. There are nutrition and education programs for children. And very importantly, there is a public distribution, distribution system, which Hugo has referred to uh, in his presentation, which covers two-thirds of the population under the, the National Food Security Act. Now, of course, all these programs are underfunded and they are still not working the way they should. But I think we are seeing, we're beginning to see the foundations of some sort of social security system. I say foundation because we need much more, but it's something on which you can build. Now, the PDS is actually, sorry, PDS stands for the public distribution system in India. So the food subsidies, basically five kilos of food, rice or wheat per person at the nominal price, so basically for free for two thirds of the population. And that's actually, as close as almost any country has to UBI, I mean, two-thirds of the population, except that, firstly, it's not quite universal, and then, of course, it's in kind and not in cash, and it's not very large in terms of the size of the transfers. But the point is that there is no plausible political scenario whereby you could have both this, the PDS, and UBI. I mean, that's just not possible, and it wouldn't make sense anyway. Why would you provide a universal income, both in cash and in kind. So basically, basically UBI takes us back to this long-standing debate about whether the PDS should be replaced with cash transfers. And that's a very valid debate. There are lots of, lots of arguments on both sides. There are issues about 
whether the government will index the cash transfers if, if they replace food rations. There are issues about the maturity of the banking system. There are issues about possible misuse of money. There are issues about how the local markets function and so on and so on. That debate goes on and will go on. Personally, I feel the time is not ripe for replacing the PDS with cash transfers for the simple reason that the pilots that have been attempted in the best case environment, namely in the highly urbanized union territories of Pondicherry and Chandigarh, have more or less failed. I mean, the <laughs> performance has been very poor and people are opposing them very strongly. So I really feel that unless you can be very sure that you are offering poor people something better than, than what they have at the moment, you should not move forward with cash transfers. You should try to make it work and uh, get poor people on board. And in the meantime, I would say, keep what is there because it's working. I mean, it's expensive. Yes, it's true. Food transfers are expensive. It involves a lot of transaction costs and you have to procure the food and move it around and then distribute it and so on and so forth. But at least it works and it's giving a very important measure of economic security to hundreds of millions of poor people. So I think don't touch it unless you're, unless you're really very sure that you have something better to offer, which is not the case at the moment. So uh, basically to conclude, um, you know, UBI in India would mean something like at least 5% of GDP, if you take it literally, literally in the sense that not just any income transfer, but an income transfer that actually enables somebody to survive. Not, not, not more than that would have already cost you something like 5% of GDP. That's not there. I mean, you can dream, but it's not going to happen in a hurry at all. So then the question is, if we are going to have a fraction of that for cash transfers, like half of a percent or even 1% of GDP, what do we do? I mean, do you give a tiny income transfer for everyone because you really believe that universality is so important? Or are there better ways of using that small amount? And I'm absolutely convinced that there are better ways. For example, social security pensions and maternity benefits. These are schemes that are already there, grossly underfunded. They work quite well. They, reach, they directly reach very poor people. Uh, they have low transaction costs. So why not consolidate that first and then talk about UBI? And if the government of India is not even willing to do that, and they are not willing to do that, in the last 12 years, social security pensions have not been increased. The central, sorry, I should clarify, the central government contribution has not increased. Many state governments, state governments have increased the pension coverage and the pension amounts, but the central government has frozen them. So if the central government is not even willing to do that, and we're talking here of, you know, 1% of 1% of GDP, or maybe one-tenth of one percent if you have a very ambitious plan for reforming social security pensions. If the government is not even willing to do that, then what is the point of talking of spending 5% of GDP on UBI? It's not going to happen. So I think one day perhaps it will be a good idea for India. I hope it will. Uh, it's a kind of futuristic idea. But if you're talking of the here and now, and if you're talking in practical terms, not, not a kind of academic discussion, but a practical discussion of what it is that we can adv advocate that could actually work and that is politically possible, then I think that we're talking of something completely different from UBI. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Very, very clear and, and important points coming out of the discussions and realities uh, of India. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for your for for these remarks um, and and um, and for sharing your these experiences. I'm going to come back now to initially to Hugo and and but open, start to open up the discussion more widely. I think. Um, we, we have heard about complementarity in some sense between UBI and, and UBS, but also the reality of tensions and potential trade-offs, particularly when it comes, for instance, from a financing perspective and within fiscal um, contexts of you know, how you allocate uh, funds. So that there is a risk that uh, an emphasis, again, on, on UBI or indeed expanding income uh, cash-based transfers can detract from um, from the strengthening uh, or indeed establishment of social services. And well, I just wanted to come back to you and, and the work that you did on this book around what what emerges, what do we know about what it is about designing a UBI or, or a UBI-like type transfer mm -hmm. that would avoid or minimize uh, <laughs> uh, these potential trade-offs? Where do we see opportunities for actually the, 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 an income transfer to actually potentially strengthen? Uh, or contribute to efforts to strengthen the social social provision of social ser basic services? Well, it's a very tough question. Um, I think there is uh, uh, a whole discussion on uh, uh, conditionalities mm -hmm. and the various form of conditionalities uh, from soft to hard, which is a debate. Uh, but I would hazard uh, to say that actually um, how poverty, the societal framing of poverty, it's important. Um, if you see poverty simply as a lack of cash, um, then I think it's possible and likely that a UBI may come at expense of services. You give cash, mission accomplished. If you see poverty as an empowerment issue, where Purchasing power is part of it, um, but there are things that you cannot monetize. Then I think that sort of framing uh, somewhat may help a little bit mitigate um, uh, the complementarity between you know UBI and services. And I'm saying this um, because, as Caroline has said, Isabel said that, and Jean also. Um, I mean, there are a number of positive outcomes that come from transfers per se, um, vast evidence around it. But what we also see is that uh, the role of social workers matters, even in terms of performance. When we look at the role in Chile, in Palestine, they really help and uh, augment the performance of transfers, uh, and that without really that precious input, you know, the performance would be less. Um, we see it in the context of the counseling and the accompanying measures that have such a big impact on uh, gender-based violence and intimate partner violence in particular. We've seen that in Ecuador, in Mali, in Bangladesh. Um, we see it when, uh, um, uh, when transfers are part or, you know, help people engage in communities. Um, we have seen in Colombia, for example, that women that participated in a cash transfer scheme that were um, as part of uh, so-called conditions, right, 
um, they were more likely to interact with uh, a range of officials and uh, their awareness on the importance of engaging in politics grew and uh, those beneficiaries were more likely to vote at elections. Um, so where, and, and we see that also in, in economic terms, uh, there is some evidence from Drega on the sense of empowerment that uh, not only transfer per se, but participation in work uh, can, um, can bolster. Um, uh, so where I'm getting at, I think it's uh, uh, in part this framing of poverty, not just as lack of cash, but empowerment more widely, but also to look at transfers not as, as ends in itself, in themselves. The, the idea of looking at transfers in cash, but by the way also in, in, in kind, uh, as platforms. Um, they may have catalytic effect, something that is very concrete that people get, but also may attract services. It's a platform for building, a platform for reaching people. They're not just income transfers per se. And I think if we uh, have a framing that is purely based on transfers per se, we, we lose a lot of all of those important dynamics that ultimately shape people's vulnerabilities. Thank you, Hugo. Uh, Anna, I'm just going to turn to Anna and, and um, put forward a question that has come through online uh, from Sven in Vienna. Do you see UBS part of post-growth agenda? Uh, meaning that it will contribute to overcome the growth paradigm and enable a shrinking economy to be socially acceptable? Well, I do, but I actually think that that's a very long debate yes. and one that we, um, that we need to certainly have in our minds. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that's the justification for what we're, we're trying to argue in terms of services. What I would like to say is that um, if only all the energy, I mean, Hugo mentioned uh, before this debate started, that has gone into UBI, there have been um, about 180 books on UBI. Yeah. Okay, there's one on services. Now, if everyone out there who is thinking about um, programs that are about uh, relieving poverty or I I trying to develop equality, whatever the motivation is, um, we're, all, we're equally looking at the same time as what can be done to generate collective activity to help people meet their needs. We would be in a much better place than we are now, where the main thrust of efforts to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to do things differently in a number of countries around the world is to, to go for something called UBI, which, as we know, means many, many different things. It's very rarely universal. And, um, and so my plea is to see services, it's a source of uh, um, employment as well. I mean, a massive, potentially, if you think about healthcare, education, social care, housing, if these things c should be seen as a source of employment as well as uh, meeting needs directly. And they're stable, and they employ a lot of women, and um, so they should be part of the, of the planning. So, you know, let's just try and do these things together and we I would say I don't want to rule out cash payments to people who need them not at all and I can quite see where Caroline is coming from but that's a different program that's a a, a program to give cash philanthropically to extremely deprived uh, communities people in extremely disadvantaged communities great but that's you don't then just sit back and hope that the government will provide uh, 
healthcare and education and uh, access to electricity because you want the people themselves to be involved in that process, to have control over it. So you've got to have both, but I wish that some of that political and intellectual and social energy would go into thinking about universal basic services. Thank you, Anna. Caroline, I'll come back to you and, um, and to your very powerful accounts of um, the work you're doing in, in uh, Kenya. Uh, Jean, I'll come to you as well in a minute. Uh, uh, Caroline, could you address in some sense what Anna has just uh, picked up on, uh, the question of perhaps giving us some examples. I mean, you did discuss of the, the empowerment effects of the cash that, you're, you, that is being um, transferred but uh, give us some examples of the way it links to, and perhaps by increasing, say, demand for services, or, again, bearing in mind that we can only achieve and expect to achieve so much through these basic income schemes, um, but give us examples of whether and how there, there might be links to, to the basic services agenda. So, um, thanks, thanks, thanks again, Francisca. Um, this is a really critical matter. And one of the things that we hoped that we could be able to see is impact beyond individual beneficiaries. When we give the cash, that we could see some impact that roll beyond the village. And the truth is we see some of those. And I'll give you an example. Um, in one village that I visited some time back, I spoke to a number of parents and they told me, we have a community and we have a school within the community that has been provided by the government. We have a shortfall of teachers, yet we know our education system is exam-based. So our children must pass their examination and pass well. And for them to do that, they need sufficient teachers dedicating their time to bring them up the right way. So with their basic income, this community, they agreed that each parent was going to put together $7 out of their $22. Over a period of three months, when they were preparing their children to go take exams, and they hired teachers that are not government paid. And those teachers actually teach their children. When they started, it was a one-off thing to help our children, uh, you know, be able to pass the exams. Over time, that has become a program, and those teachers still remain in the parent salary, uh, salary program. So that's one example. Far away, about 200 kilometers away from this specific village, I visit a second village. And in this village, it's not about education, it's not about health, it's about water. And they've identified that water is a big need in their community. They have seen that, you know, they need to act as a community to bring in piped water into their village so that they can be able to address the problem with water once and for all. And they say, this is something we've planned for many years, but because people don't have the same stream of income and the same amount of money that flow into their households, it's very difficult for us to com it was very difficult for us to commit to a project such as this. But when we knew that we have an income stream that is going to be coming over 12 years, we committed to put money. And today, I can tell you, they have water. So those are impacts beyond the community. They're not very many, but the fact that there are few that are happening is an indication that you know what? 
this money triggers new ways of thinking. And, you know, um, just to talk about like what Ugo was saying about poverty and cash and empowerment and looking at poverty holistically, um, it is very true that sometimes when you sit and judge someone living in a rural area, you may want to say that that person is living in poverty. Yet in real terms, in terms of provision, that person may not be poor because they have everything provided for within their local environment. They get food from their farms, they're comfortable in their house, and they live on a daily, on a daily life happy, just the way we live in our mansions and feel very happy about our life. Yet there is also another dynamic that we cannot forget, that the economies that are running today have made even villages capitalistic. Farms are not productive, and you cannot eat if you don't have money. And that is why institutions like the World Bank have set for us standards for what help us to define poverty, and that is money-based. So when we say somebody lives in under a dollar a day, we can be able to say that person is chronically poor, that's hardcore poor. Yes, if you're living in $3 a day, then we can still call you poor, but you're not hardcore poor. So money still becomes an integral part of defining poverty in a capitalistic economy that we are living in today. So those two dynamics, we can't, we can't forget about them. Context in defining poverty and also the economy, the, the economy that we live in right now that is very capitalistic and cash-based. That even an old woman will come, you come to the house, she doesn't have money, but you come in from the city and she's like, did you bring me some money? It's about money. And I'm going to thank you. Uh, I'll I'll go to Jean who was waving. Uh, Jean, would you? The the mic is over to you. Questions. Um, it was a question for Anna because I agree with very much with almost everything she said. But I'm a little bit surprised to see that you think that UBS can be achieved with four or five percent of GDP, because in European or at least Western European countries, if that, if I'm not mistaken. Already about 8% of GDP is being spent on public uh, education facilities and 6% on, sorry, 6% on education, about 8% on health. So that's 14% just for health and education. So I'm not very clear how you think that we can do UBS with 4 to 5% of GDP. That doesn't really uh, make sense to me, but maybe you can explain. Sorry, it sounds like splitting hair, but I think we have to accept that we are talking big here. We're talking of big social programs and it can't be done It's worth thinking about um, public services as a, or universal basic services as a, investing in them in the same way as we might invest in electricity grids, uh, roads, railways and things like that. Now the figure that we came up with was specifically about the extension of basic services that we have recommended in our book, and this is starting from a kind of European base, if you like, um, where there are already uh, existing services. So it's, it's an about additional. You mean additional for developers? Yes, and I think really it's quite um, well. It's impossible to give a an accurate estimate at the moment 
but you have to see it in terms of an investment that will yield dividends because a lot of this is preventing other problems from occurring. It's about uh, enabling people to live on less disposable income. It's about creating jobs. It's about keeping people healthy and well. Uh, so there are um, many, many ways in which the investment in the services yields dividends. But I, I, agree. I mean, you're quite right to say, well, what do you mean by 5% of GDP? I think it's... Um, it, it, it applies to a specific set of circumstances that we set out in the book. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go back to briefly to Isabel. There's a question that's come through, and I'm aware it's somewhat unfair to ask you to address it in a few minutes, but I will pose it to you, which is what promise does the UBI hold for gender equality? This comes from Maya Gavrilovic, our colleague um, at UNICEF. Would you like to briefly address that Sure. Um, thank you. I think Caroline was talking to this as well. Um, in a lot of the research that we've found, uh, we've seen that the income going to into the hands of, of caregivers, predominantly women, um, have increased their autonomy and their independence. What we see in South Africa, however, and this is why for us it it's, um, raises the, the question of a basic income grant, is that um, where Cash grants are targeted to caregivers of children um, in a situation where there is such high unemployment for both men and women. Men tend to start feeling marginalized and alienated as they can't provide for anything. And so the question of having um, a universal basic income has been cited as being having the ability to actually um, to, to try and stabilize that power relationship. Um, and I just want to come in here on the question of power. The, I've been I've been grappling with this question with this issue of, of basic services. So I mentioned um, in my input that in South Africa a lot of the basic services are not functioning, um, and in a more developed country, I think one would say that citizens would then have the right of recourse to the providers to local government. Um, I think for for our situation in South Africa right now, um, the question of political accountability at a local level um, still requires. Um, a, a lot of a better understanding and, and hence for us the idea of cash going through and making sure that people are not dependent on functioning civil servants or functioning outsourced programs um, is a much greater guarantee. Um, the other thing that we're talking about locally is the uh, basically the universal endorsement of universality that the IMF and the World Bank um, have been cited for and it's interesting that within those large institutions, there does not seem to be a complete sort of hegemony around that. But, um, I mean, for, for us, cash is liberating. That horrible line that cash is king is, is very gendered and, and very um, unequal. But uh, it definitely gives people the ability, and, and what Caroline was saying, to stimulate from a grassroots up um, sense the kinds of local demands and hence uh, local economic development that we're just seeing stultifying. Um, and then just to note that tonight our parliament opens for the year. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting. There's been a huge number of debates on all the chat shows, etc. In fact, I've got to go off and, and go into one right now um, about the question of redistribution. And there's no guaranteed agreement that um, a basic income grant is the prime vehicle for redistribution because there's so many exogenous factors. But it certainly for us is that it's a... It's a labeling, uh, drawing attention to the fact that we are in a crisis um, and we need different modalities for transferring 
um, towards a greater equality. So um, I know that you haven't gotten to asking me the question, which was, is UBI time right now? Um, I don't see any other policy um, solution that has an immediate turnaround time to, to meet the, the size of the crisis that we are. So I would say, yes, with services, uh, investment, education coming in in the medium to long term, but something has to change very, very soon right here in South Africa. Thank you so much, Isabel. Uh, Sean, coming to you, uh, coming back to you, a question uh, around coming back to the Indian example and discussion on whether you have a sense that the emphasis on transfers, whether cash and 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 the in kind and the, the debate that is um, very ongoing and lively on that, whether that detracts attention away from service provision um, efforts and and pressure on governments to to focus more on, on that? Yes, I think there is an issue there. Um, if I can start with the methodological remark, actually I've made it, or I've tried to make it already, but maybe not clearly enough. I think that it's one thing uh, to look for what Hugo called the optimal equilibrium. I mean, that's a kind of academic exercise, what what could we do best if we had a kind of blank slate? That's one question that's worth discussing. And But the other question that's quite different is, what can we achieve today in the present political environment? And what I, what I was trying to explain is that in the last 15, 20 years, we have moved in steps, uh, sometimes advocating school meals, sometimes advocate, advocating maternity, maternity benefits and so on. We have moved towards something that's beginning, beginning to resemble a coherent foundation for a social security system. And I think that UBI, if it's desirable at all, has to fit in that framework. And right now it doesn't fit at all, except possibly in the limited form that I've mentioned of uh, the debate between cash and kind in the public distribution system. I think that's a valid debate. But to suddenly come up with UBI as a kind of alternative formula, as if you could return to the blank slate and then initiate a completely different approach based on UBI, which is extremely expensive. Um, you know, in practice, what this does is to deflate the current movement and the current efforts. And it gives a handle to the opponents of all these social programs to, you know, pretend that they support UBI when actually, if anything really happens, it will be a targeted, uh, very, very unambitious cash transfer program. And that's exactly what we have seen last year in the context of the parliamentary elections, when a so-called UBI-inspired proposal was made by one political party. And actually, it is a highly targeted cash transfer program. It's actually the antithesis of UBI. It's 20% of the population without any clarity about how these 20% are going to be selected and what will be the modality of the transfers and so on and so forth. So uh, this kind of proposal, in my view, is very counterproductive because it's an opportunity for the opponents, opponents of social programs, and there are many, and there are many powerful opponents. It's an opportunity for them to support something else, to undermine what is there, and then later on uh, deflate that alternative itself. And that's very easy to do because if you have cash transfers, the easiest way 
to reduce uh, their their size and coverage is just to uh, abstain from indexing the cash transfer. So it's a very simple way of phasing them out. So I think we have to be very aware of these political realities if we are talking not just of the academics of optimal equilibrium, but also, I'm not saying that in a disparaging way, I think it's a valid valid debate, but if we are not talking about that, but about practical, you know, uh, po politics and as well as economics, remembering also that in the affluent countries, all these social security systems that we're talking about, you know, universal healthcare, social security, pensions, all these have been the outcomes of very fierce political battles. So that's the way, that's the perspective in which we have to talk about these things if we are, if we mean business and not just an academic reflection, which has its own value. Thank you, John. John, thank you very much. So a final, a final um, closing remarks by, from all our speakers. I did ask them to come up with a final uh, key message that should come across uh, as a result of this uh, conversation. Uh, one minute final pitch. Mm. Ugo, coming back to you. Um, I would say let's not start from what to do in terms of instrument, let's start from the problem that we want to address. Um, uh, I think that it's unlikely that uh, you know services gonna uh, help solve all the, the problems that transfers may help, uh, help to solve and vice versa. So there are, there are different things. And uh, so if we start by trying to understand the problem, try to set the objectives, um, and then identifying the bottlenecks, that might be a more uh, uh, fruitful and constructive conversation. Think of education. So if, if there is a problem with education, um, just giving more money to people uh, won't necessarily give you higher quality education. It's about the curriculums, classrooms, uh, teachers being present, professional teachers. Uh, at the same time, just investing on the supply side, doesn't necessarily reduce child labor, nor improve people's nutrition. So um, I think it's really a matter of uh, uh, looking at how they can complement each other for different goals, and uh, for policymakers to have the flexibility of using both and being able to operate across the supply and demand side according to where the specific bottlenecks are. Thank you. Anna. You. Yes, I think um, we, we should stop talking about universal basic income and start talking about universal basic entitlements. I think, and seeing them as a package, I think that would be really helpful because whether we like it or not, and I, I'm sure you don't, that UBI has, has, has begun to mean something that we really don't want it to mean, which is it's a, a lever to, uh, well, it's a it's a, a measure to introduce to re, to um, as, as a substitute for, for public services and as a way of saying, well, we don't really need the state, let's roll back the state. This is absolutely neoliberal politics. And one other thing I think we ought to always remember about power, and let's just suppose, for the sake of the argument, we do have an ideal basic income scheme so that everybody has got a bit or maybe enough to, to live on or whatever, and, and there it is. Now, that's a single lever for the source of that money to pull 
and what uh, if you can give, you can take away. If you have services where people are in control locally and there are a different range of services, you've got a much more diffused power base. But that basic income thing gives a huge amount of power to whether it's a charity like Give Directly or a national government, which they can simply pull whichever way they, they want to. I don't want to disparage the charities that are doing this. It's a completely different matter. That is aid and it's great and it's had some good results, but it's not like empowering people to get together, to pool their resources, to share risks, and to um, ensure that everybody meets their essential needs. Thank you. Caroline, over to you. Caroline. So, um, after all is said and done, I think the most important thing is to secure human dignity and to make sure that humanity lives for the purpose for which it, is, it was meant. It is good that organizations such as Give Directly are doing what we are doing. It is good that people are thinking about humanity and living a, dignity, a dignified life. It is also very important that we think about many other people who may be still living in suffering and in poverty and in deprivation as we sit and talk about UBS and UBI and they are waiting for what Ugo has said, the solution to the problem. We need to find solutions to the problems and not to find, uh, you know, boardroom answers to the ringing in our minds. Humanity and dignity should supersede everything that we think about. Thank you. Isabel, over to you. Thank you. Very rapidly. Uh, it's been a very enjoyable debate. I think for me, a closing question is how does one uh, ensure that empirical evidence is actually used to motivate policy beyond ideology? Um, and I think that, that possibly the basic income is the, one of the best researched issues, policy potential solutions. Um, but we have a strong ideological objection. Oh, I think the connection is, we froze, we've lost the connection. All right, sorry, Isabel, we'll try to come back to you, if time permitting. Jean, the mic is yours. Thank you. Well, in the context of India, I would just say, let's shelve the UBI debate for a few years, maybe 10, 20 years. Let's talk right now about Healthcare, because I think that is a big gaping hole in the social security framework in India, such as it is. And that is something that really has to be um, expanded and possibly universalized very rapidly. So I think that needs a lot more attention. And I think the time for serious discussions of UBI will come, but it's not today. So unfortunately, uh, we do have to wrap up. I'm, I'm really sorry because in some ways I think we were just getting started. But uh, I hope um, at a minimum we have uh, st stimulated people to, to think about these issues, those that have been following the conversation. Certainly it has had my, my mind uh, working and moving. Um, I want to thank, a huge thanks to, to all five speakers. Uh, thanks so much for, for sharing 
your thoughts, your experience. Uh, it's been a huge uh, privilege to have you all uh, join us, including, of course, our speakers from, uh, from the three countries that are joining us online. Uh, just a quick word to say that um, we are, these are issues that we're working on a lot, uh, all of us involved uh, that are here today, but at ODI, the, quest, the point is watch this space. We are, we are coming out with a number of studies um, and also events to, to take this conversation forward, including around universal health care, uh, a large report on universal child benefits coming out with UNICEF in the coming months. So, so let's keep this conversation going and work, uh, continue to work together. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>